This is uh, part two of an I don't know how many part series, three or four, depends, four. Um, in talking about Pirkei Avot, Pirkei Avot, uh, just to remind you, some of you, somebody walked in with one, I see. There's various versions of it. This one is the latest one that was out, the uh, Yitz Greenberg's uh, translation and commentary. This one uh, by Rabbi Rami Shapiro called Ethics of the Sages, Pirkei Avot, is... Uh, it's very user-friendly, and it um, has Rami Shapiro's own take on things. He's a rabbi, Buddhist, interesting kind of guy, so he's, uh, he's wonderful. He uh, writes beautiful things, Rami Shapiro, actually. Lots, all of his books are beautiful. Um, so I recommend that also. In any event, Pirkei Avot has uh, been handed down for the last couple thousand years as a as, uh, you all know by now. It's um, a book of pithy sayings, really. It's, uh, it's a book of proverbs and sayings, rabbinic sayings, that were uh, gathered together by uh, Rabbi Judah Hanasi, Judah the Prince. We're going to probably get to Judah the Prince today, so we'll read a little bit of him. Um, and uh, it's the only section or tractate of the Talmud that has no commentary. <clears throat> it simply stands alone. Every other section of the Talmud's got lots of commentary, which is why the Talmud is 20 volumes long. <coughs> so, except for this. Um, and uh, we began reading uh, chapter one, and we never finished, so I don't have any idea where we stopped. Does anybody? Do you? Otherwise, I'll just grab one and start talking. Anybody know where we stopped? Did we do Shimon ben Shatach? About witnesses, and we mentioned lawyers, because I have no, I'm so good at this. Okay, in any event. Well, we'll love it. We'll start with 110, toward the bottom, okay? Um, Shemai and Aftalion. Again, you see, these are all couples. Zugot in Hebrew, couples. These are uh, a series of couples who were the president and vice president of the rabbinical assembly of the time. That's what they were, literally. They were the Nasi, which is the Hebrew word for president, and the Avbeitin, which is not the Hebrew word for vice president, but Avbeitin is, literally means the, the father of the Beitin, you know, literally, but it's the, he was, that was the vice president. So these were like couples that have been passed down and they're, that went together because they, they worked together, they taught together, they're contemporaries. Often one of the confusing things about studying Jewish uh, ancient Jewish texts, certainly Talmud, Talmud and Midrash is that people talk to each other across centuries. So when, when the Talmud was gathered together, for example, you, the Talmud typically is a, a text in Hebrew taken from the Mishnah, which was, you know, uh, the earliest work. And then surrounding that are all these commentaries talking about this little section from the Mishnah that it might say. So, uh, for example, the Mishnah might say, um, uh, on Hanukkah you light eight lights and just might just say that then the Talmud is all these commentaries about well when do you light them how do you light them in fact last time I remember talking about Hillel and Shammai and their different arguments and should you start with one and go to eight should you start with eight and, and reduce down to one you know all, that's 
that's the commentary that sort of surrounds on a page in the Talmud the one sentence from the Mishnah. And then that could go on for pages because, and then whoever compiled the actual written text of the Talmud compiled all of the commentaries that the rabbis over four or five hundred years said about, in this case, lighting the Hanukkah menorah and where you should put it. And, you know, um, since Hanukkah is this month, where are you supposed to put your Hanukkah menorah? In the window. window. Why? So that people can see the light. Why do we want them to see the light? That's the great question. Because you're right. Talmud says, the rabbis say, you should put your Hanukkah, your Hanukkah menorah in the window. And the answer that they give, and the reason is, lefarnes et hanes, which means to publicize the miracle. You put it in the window so that people walk by and go, oh, Jews live here. Actually, there's a thing in the Talmud that says you're supposed to put it in the window unless it's a time of danger. If it's a time of danger, don't be dumb. Don't put it in the window and advertise there's a Jew living here. You know, which, because, you know, we're Jews and we're constantly living through times of danger. So, but you're supposed to put it in the window to Lefarnesetanes, to publicize the miracle of Hanukkah. And then there's a whole section and there's conversations back and forth exactly what was the miracle of Hanukkah, you know, whether it's lights, whether it's whatever, which I won't do right now unless someone wants me to talk about it. But um, whoever compiled the Talmud picked this comment and wherever there were comments about this, the issues of Hanukkah, for example, and put them on the same page. So you may have one sage that's quoted, and then the next sage is quoted as if they're in the same room talking to each other when, in fact, they were 200 years apart. Which is, you know, kind of the fun of trying to figure out who's what and where and where did this come from uh, when you're studying Talmud, which was never my favorite thing to do, but it was uh, it's challenging. Um, plus, the, the, all the commentaries on, in the Talmud are in Aramaic and not in Hebrew, so <coughs> makes it just a little more fun. In any event, uh, um, I was never very good in Aramaic. Not even that good in English, so. So, the, however, here, we don't have that. Here, when it says, Shemai and Avtalion, on 110, received it from them, it's literal. They were the next in line running the rabbinic seminary from the people above, Yehuda ben Tabai and Shimon ben Shetah, who were the previous president and vice president of the rabbinical assembly, stages assembly. And then the next was Shemaiah and Avtalion. And then this is uh, Shemaiah became the Nasi, the president in 65, BCE, just to give you an idea, just before the common era. That's when this is, just around the turn of the millennium there. Um, and um, he was one who was known for for exalting work, everyday work. There were those who just liked to be rabbis and study, and there were those who also had professions. Most of these guys had professions, and then they also studied. They were also sages. And some of them exalted work, and some of them exalted study over work, and it was one of their arguments. In any event, Shemaiah says, love work. <laughs> How interesting. 
love work, hate authority, and don't get cozy with the government. It's amazing how perceptive these people were. <laughs> so timely. It's frightening when you read this from a couple thousand years ago. As I said, 65 BCE, Shemaya said, um, love work. So, as I said, he was talking about having a profession, having a craft, having a... Um, and he quotes, although not here, but other place, he quotes uh, another passage in the Talmud where it says that a uh, whoever doesn't teach his son a craft teaches him robbery. <laughs> it's understandable. You know, if you don't teach your son a craft, you're teaching him to, rob, to steal. Because um, he's got to live. Got to live somehow. You know, teach him one way or another. So uh, it's the obligation to teach uh, a livelihood, to pass on a livelihood to your child. So why do you think these three go together? Love, work, hate, authority, and don't get cozy with the government. Do they have any connection? Yeah. And the connection for you is what? Well, I guess hate, authority, and don't get cozy with the government seem to be almost the same thing. Although not really. What do you think hate, authority means? Yes, the Romans, not very friendly guys. Yeah, we're not friendly with the Romans. That government would have been the Romans. They were part of the fighting against the Romans, exactly. This was 65, and 70 was when the temple was destroyed. So, you know, so you'd think this would be what, Sabrina? Hating authority means stifling creativity also. Hmm. Yes. Beautiful. Um, it's also an issue of self-reliance. At a time of increasingly oppressive government control of one's life, the more self-reliant you can be, the better off you are. So the more you can um, keep far away that's another one coming up. Keep, keep far away from those in power um, because uh, they considered those in power to be like um, like a bright burning flame. You need it to heat the house, but you don't want to get too close or you get burned. You know, it's, it's the... Much of these comments, as you'll see when you think about it in this context, are also about balance. How do you have a balanced life? You can't have anarchy. The rabbis were certainly not in favor of anarchy. So you need an authority. You need laws. The whole Torah is about laws and rules and statutes and ordinances and courts. And I mean, that, you know this very elaborate, after all, system of social interaction and, and criminal law and social law and, um, and civil law. Uh, so they were big fans of that, and they were judges, and much of this is about judging and what, when people come to you. But, you know, it's, it's all in to be kept in balance. Don't get too friendly with the government. Why? Why not? Wouldn't you think like, hey... <laughs> Don't you want to cozy up to whoever's in power? 
You lose control. Yeah. Right. So it doesn't really, I, I don't understand what exactly where they're coming from, but it seems contrary. So, right. So, yeah, the context is secular authority as opposed to religious authority for them, because they are the religious authority. They see themselves as, that, that's where we started up here. Moses received the Torah from God, who passed it on to Joshua, who passed it on to, who passed it on to, and eventually came to us, all of them, and now it's ours. So we now carry the the source, the sense of authority, the mantle of authority directly from God. That's what chapter 1, verse 1 is all about. It's, it's them declaring we are the religious authority. So listen to us. So when they say authority, yes, what they are talking about is secular authority um, and being careful because, after all, secular authority can change in a moment. <laughs> Didn't we notice? So you never know. You never know where the winds of change are going to take you. So all of those who cozy up to this person suddenly find they're on the outs and the next day. Right? So... so uh, the first separation of church and state. Yeah, it's, it was a desire to have a separation of church and state. And Avtalion says, be very careful with your words lest you incur evil exile, excuse me, to evil waters then those who follow you will drink and die and diminish the name of heaven. That sounds obscure. What do you think that means? Be very careful with your words, lest you incur exile to evil waters. Then those who follow you will drink and die and diminish the name of heaven. So, as you think about trying to figure out what that means, Avtalion is talking to other teachers, okay, in this context. He is giving advice to teachers. Yeah. I, I, I don't know, I just listened to a very long tape on the Dead Sea Scrolls, which, which was a sect, and mm-hmm. a very extreme sect. And it sounds to me kind of like he's warning against sectarianism, against, um, you know, if you, you may not view what you're doing as evil waters, but if you get so extreme even in your in your religion, that the others who, who follow you um, say all become celibate. You know, where the next Jews going to come? So uh, this could refer to like the Essene sect that's uh, from the Dead Sea Scrolls. That if you separate yourself out from and um, become an extremist, Jewish or otherwise, you run the risk of of killing the majority. Lit- I mean, not literally, but spiritually, <coughs> uh, leading them astray. Uh, watch what you teach, because if people, if you are a charismatic teacher, people may follow you, regardless of whether you're telling the truth or not telling the truth, regardless of whether you are a right thinker or a wrong thinker, regardless of what you're teaching. In fact, we certainly have that all over the world and have had that forever, that people follow the wrong people because they're attractive from one reason or another. Um, I'm not saying a word. I'm just talking about the Talmud here. Mishnah, actually. 
Um, but yes, that, that's the idea. I mean, the idea of Avtalion was to say, be careful, period, with your words. The rest is like metaphor for him. That, um, you know, it's, it's easy to drink poison if you think it's something delicious. Here, honey, drink that. You know, it's so good. It's so good for you. And the same is with teachers. Teachers who act as if they're carrying a divine authority with them. And so easy to lead you astray. And then you become the source of someone else's going, someone else going astray and therefore diminish God's name. Therefore become the reason that God's holiness, sanctity is diminished. So now we get to Hillel and Shammai. Turn the page. If you still have the page. Hillel and Shammai received it from them. Hillel says, Hillel says a whole bunch of stuff. Hillel's more quoted than anybody. But here. Hillel says, be of the disciples of Aaron, loving peace and pursuing peace. I love this phrase. Ohev shalom, varodev shalom. Loving peace and pursuing peace, loving people and bringing them to Torah. Between Moses and Aaron, Aaron, in the rabbinic mind, is associated with the peacemaker. Why? What did Aaron ever do that sounded, made him become, in the rabbinic mind, you think, associated as a peacemaker? He was a talker. He was the guy that uh, Moses said, I can't talk. So God said, well, take your brother Aaron. He can talk. Yes. Yeah, so he was uh, one of those guys who had to watch out for the last side. Anybody? What? Who was Aaron? Moses' brother. What did he do? He was the high priest. He was the Kohen Agadol. So, when Moses was up at Mount Sinai, hanging out with God, getting those Ten Commandments, what was Aaron doing? Oh, Aaron was down there where they were making the golden calf. <laughs> down below, while Moses was upstairs on the top of uh, top floor of Mount Sinai, down on the bottom floor in the lobby, Aaron was hanging out with all those people who said, where did Moses go? We're scared. We've got to make ourselves a another god. Moses, in their mind, was God. After all, he just liberated them from slavery. So they do what? They say, Aaron, make us an idol. Make us something. And Aaron says to them, okay, well, give me all your jewelry. According to the rabbis, thinking they would, who would give up their jewelry? But they all gave up their jewelry, and he threw it into a fire, and out came, according to the Torah, out came a golden calf, which didn't make God or Moses happy. But in any event, this was sort of a seminal turning point, one of many in the 40 years of wandering. Moses smashes the tablets, remember, gets all angry, sees this thing, they're dancing around, has to go back up, another 40 days of fasting, and writes another Torah's uh, Ten Commandments out, and comes back down again. So in the rabbi's mind they have to figure out how to justify Aaron because was like not really the at his best. He was the high priest and what he did was help them create an idol, literally. This big golden calf, which has ever since become like a symbol of idolatry, the golden calf, for God's sake. Well, not for God's sake, for golden calf's sake. Um, so what the rabbis do to... to kind of gloss over Aaron is they say, you see, the reason he did that was because he's like, he's the peacemaker. 
So he was stalling till Moses got back by, you know, there was going to be a rebellion and a revolution. And he was like, you know, go along to get along, to go along, to get along, to make things work. And he's the peacemaker. So he became associated as a Rodef Shalom, a pursuer of peace. So I'm sorry, you had your hand up. I was going to ask, the Mount Sinai that they refer to, yeah. is it basically the same one that's in the Sinai Desert? At Jebel Musa, that they call Jebel Musa? You were saying, oh, the monasteries? Hard to know. It's hard to know. Because there's no geographical description in the Torah. It's just they wandered and came to Mount Sinai. So, you know, that's sort of the common wisdom is that they picked that mountain and said that's it. But in reality, there's no certainty about that at all. Most of the mountains in Sinai aren't that high. But, you know, none of them are really that high. So, you know, if you can climb it, it can't be that high. Everybody can just climb up there. So <laughs> nobody really knows. That's become both in uh, for Jews and Muslims and Christians, everybody pretty much has decided that's Mount Sinai. Um, but, you know, right, it's one of the few things they agreed on. So be the disciples of Aaron, loving peace and pursuing peace, loving people and bringing them to Torah. It's like one of the great phrases of the, of the Mishnah, that your job is, according to Aaron, according to Hillel, to make peace. That's our job. You know, if you did nothing else but, but followed this, you'd be doing well. Following Aaron, following Hillel, Pursuing peace. And you do that by loving people. It says loving people. And it doesn't say some people and not other people, or men and not women, or women and not men, or old and not young, or young and not old, or anything. It just says loving people. You know, it's one of those phrases that speaks to the universalism of Jewish ethics and values. Loving people than bringing them to Torah. So bringing them to Torah literally doesn't necessarily, because here Torah, as always referred to when the sages talk about Torah, they don't necessarily talk about that. It's not small Torah, Torah scroll. It's Torah learning, study, all of the, the, the way of God is really what they mean, bringing them to that. So, unless you're a literalist. He used to say, we're still into Hillel, one who tries to inflate his reputation loses his reputation. Getting into some of my favorite Talmud phrases. Who doesn't increase knowledge, decreases it. Cease to learn and you cease to live. Exploit Torah knowledge and you will perish. Wow. <laughs> uh, I can't remember the Hebrew exactly, but uh, the translation of exploit is, could also mean um, if you use Torah for gain, you know, for your own devices, which is why I put exploit, um, then you'll perish. Okay, so this is a lot in this. One who tries to inflate his reputation loses his reputation. What do you think? I sure hope it happens. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's like, remember, one of the greatest qualities, one of the most important qualities that, that, uh, rabbis elevate 
of all of the human qualities um, is humility. Humility. Modesty is a version of, uh, sort of a, an offshoot of humility. But humility. Moses is, you know, greatest lawgiver, the greatest leader of all Jewish time was Moses. And Moses' number one quality, according to the sages, was humility. Number one, humility. Um, and, you know, there's lots of jokes about, you know, faking it. If you can fake humility, you can do whatever. But the, the reality is that um, the rabbis were big on authenticity. And, um, and they recognized that, you know, these are words of wisdom that could be in any self-help book. You know, you go toot your own horn all the time, you irritate people, and they mostly aren't, don't want to be around you. You know, they don't want to be around someone who's talking about themselves all the time. Never mind. Um, I won't do it. Too obvious anyway. Um, but, you know, when you're humaning out with your friends or with your family or with whatever, you know, it's like you want people to be saying nice things about you you, that you don't have to say yourself. <laughs> the more you try to build your, yourself up in general, in life, in business, and other places, the less people think of you. It's just the way it is. You know, it's, and this is what they were, Hillel was teaching a couple thousand years ago. Um, and likewise, he said, in a similar vein, I mean, you notice these are, these are linked together by Hillel for mnemonic reasons. It's easier to remember them. If you don't, if you try to inflate your reputation, you'll deflate your reputation. If you don't increase your knowledge, you'll decrease your knowledge. What does that mean? If you don't increase your knowledge, you'll decrease it. If you don't use it, you'll lose it. What else? Boy, he was 2,000 years ago. Just think about that. I mean, really, you know, today it's like every day, right? <laughs> every day you're behind. You're, you can't even ever catch up today with knowledge. I mean, just the, the amount of knowledge that we have at our fingertips, that we have in my phone, you know, it's like terrifying to think. I would never run out of things to read with, with this, right? Ever. It, in a million years I'd probably never run out of stuff. It's like forever. So now more than ever, if you don't increase your knowledge, you're instantly, instantly, instantly decreasing. Yeah. Just the modernity of it. It's like um, I get this AARP daily newsletter, and every single, every single day it says, "Cease to learn, and and you cease to live." You know, if you don't play games, if you don't do this, you know. The, the well, they want your mind to stay as sharp as you can keep it, too, yeah. right? But I mean, <coughs> but it's exactly what. Expect to lose it or so use it or you'll lose it. Right? Him, I mean, it was yeah. See, the thing that's wonderful about studying ancient, ancient wisdom is it's like, oh, you know, the sun rises and the sun sets. Where was that? Ecclesiastes. And there's nothing new under the sun. You know, the things that are, that are wisdom, they're called wisdom literature for a reason. Because wisdom hasn't really changed. Wisdom is wisdom. You know, I, I think that the wisdom that you find of much of this, I mean, it speaks to me, it has my whole life. Okay, it's only a couple thousand years old, but um, from a couple thousand years ago has nothing to do with our modern world in which we live. 
you know, how would pluck Hillel out of there and drop him in today? And, you know, he'd probably go crazy from uh, visual overload or whatever would happen to someone from the past. Um, but the wisdom of the of human interaction, the wisdom that comes from studying human nature and how to be a successful human being, not to be successful in a particular trade or not, that's a different set of of knowledge, seems to me, but the wisdom of how to get along, how to bring peace into the world, how to try, we haven't done it yet, um, it seems to be consistent for thousands of years. So you go get a, go to the Barnes & Noble, which I think is the only remaining bookstore left in the world, go to Barnes & Noble and go to their self-help, you know, shelves and pull out books of people that are whoever's the hot contemporary preacher of today, it's not me, obviously, but, um, you know, and they'll say the same things, you know. It's true. I mean, in early civilization, they have the same problems that we have today. I mean, life in the cities or relationships with the government or whatever, nothing changes. It's just a different uh, color. Yeah, you know, I mean, things, things change. The world is different. Certainly, but I don't think people are different. I think the world is different and people are not so different. Um, and I think that's why some of these speak to people. That, you know, if you're not growing, you're shrinking. It's essentially what he's saying. That life is constant growth. You're either, you know, you need, it's like you have to you keep moving in life. You know, if you're not moving, you're... That, that passage it says if you don't teach your children a trade you're teaching the robbery teaching the robbery yes true then and it's true today right maybe not exactly and then 114 is his most famous obviously the most famous quotation from probably one of them from the entire Torah entire Talmud is this is Hillel who said if I'm not for myself who will be for me but if I am only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? Famous Hebrew phrase. These, these three. These three. If I'm not for myself, who will be for me? But if I'm only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? Why do the, how do those go together? This is without question the most known phrase from the entire Talmud. This sentence. It's about balance. About So it's about balance. You have to be willing to stand up for yourself. But, you know, you can't ignore other people around you, and if you don't do it, you, you never do it. Oh. If not now. Yeah. I don't understand the if not now when. I don't get it. I don't see the tie You don't see how there, it's related. It seems like a non sequitur yeah, to you. To so anybody? Mm-hmm. It's basically start so, acting in these manners today. Don't yeah. wait till next week. When it's so don't wait to, to do what? To take care of yourself. Ah, so if the first thing you're supposed to do is take care of yourself, says 
Hillel, if I'm not for myself, who, who's going to show up for me if it's not me? But I can't just be all about me only. We come to issues of selfishness versus selflessness and all that. The if not im loakshav imatai, which is the last phrase, but if not now, if not now that you take care of yourself, when are you ever going to take care of yourself? Is there some time in the future when you're going to take care of yourself? There's some time in the future, you know, well, when my kids grow up, when I this, when I that, if I get them, when I get a new job, when I get the time, when I, all of the things that people say to put off most of the things they say they want to do in their lives all the time, hear it all the time. Well, when this happens or that happens or this doesn't happen or that doesn't happen, then I'll be able to really decide what I want to do in life. Then I'll be able to get the job I want. Then I'll be able to create a relationship that I want. Then I'll be able to get healthy. Then I'll be able to stop smoking. Then I'll stop doing drugs. Then I'll stop drinking. Then I'll stop whatever it is that you need to stop. Um, or then I'll start. No, then I'll start. Then I'll go to the gym. Then I'll get a gym membership. Then I'll start taking care of myself. If only when that happens, then and how many people spend their whole lives talking about when they're going to do something as opposed to seizing the moment, the carpe diem, to mix linguistic metaphors. Um, both taking care of yourself and making the world better, taking care of others. I mean, if I'm only for myself, is isn't just about being selfish, obviously, or no, don't be selfish. It's about how does the world survive? How does a community, what, what's the, what is, makes a community a community? You know, a community is only a community and not a whole group of individuals who happen to be living in proximity if there's relationships. You know, yeah, Steve. Well, it strikes me, I'd never thought of it like this, but in these three sentences, he kind of gives a prescription for how people should lead their whole lives. Take care of yourself, take care of other people, and get out your butt and do it now because you don't have forever to... Probably why it's the most powerful thing. That's why I don't get it. Because if, it seems to me that the first part is a mindset. You have to put your mindset to take care of yourself. Take care of yourself, Mm mm-hmm. That's why he's the teacher. The teacher is saying, he's teacher is saying, <clears throat> it's not enough <coughs> just to have the right mindset. It's not enough that you, we could have a conversation and you could say to me, Rabbi Rubin, you know what I figured out? I figured out, just like they say on the airplane, you know, if the mask drops down, you got to put your, the mask on yourself first. I realize if I don't take care of myself, how am I going to be good to, for anybody else? I, I need to take care of myself. But obviously I can't just do that because, you know, the, what kind of a world would it be if everyone's just taking care of themselves? And I pat you on the back, not you, I pat whoever on the back, some kid who comes up and says, I have this great revelation. And then they go about doing whatever they were doing before they had this revelation. What Hillel is saying is, it's not just about having the right attitude. It's not just about getting it, that it's both you, that you have to take care of yourself 
and be willing to stand up for yourself, and that that's not sufficient to make the world the kind of world that what really matters is you do something about that revelation, that understanding, that you take that understanding and you act on it. Not sometime in the future. There is no such thing as the future. And Hillel's, I think what Hillel's statement, it's one of those contemporary, like going to an Est seminar or something, you know, it's like, it's like do it now. It's like there is no try. <laughs> you know, there's no try. Right? There's just do or don't do. Star Wars. There's no, you know, there's, it's, but it's that. It's, it's that. It's, it's act. If you don't act now, when are you going to act? If you don't act on your knowledge now, if you don't act on your wisdom, if you don't act on your insights, then all it is is intellectual ruminations. And, ah, little light bulbs go on over your head, and then that's it. But it's not enough to have, yeah, light bulbs. You see this as political and <clears throat> not just like an S seminar. Okay. Well, I went to an S seminar, so I... Yeah. I see it as that you need to be an advocate for yourself. That you can't just be passive and expect somebody else is going to look out for your interests. You have to be an advocate for yourself. Okay. So in a political action sense, you need to take care of yourself and then you have to act in ways that, <clears throat> that advocate for other people and for others. Sorry. And you can't just wait for those things to happen. <clears throat> you have to be proactive in that sense. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry for anyone who's listening. I just coughed in your face. So when life uh, throws you a curve, when life yeah. <clears throat> isn't what you expect, when things are not all going the way, the way you want them to go, then you really need this kind of wisdom to <clears throat> to um, to get you motivated and going and acting again on both of the phrase one and phrase two. Yes. Yeah, there. It's it's just that the action part is is crucial to the other the other two mattering. Doesn't matter that you put yourself first if putting yourself first is just an idea and not something that you actually do now and the next now and the next now and the next now that every day it's it's beyond you, Sabrina, because this is who you are every single day of your life. So it's like you can't conceive of anybody not being that way. So it's like, you know, um, but for many, many, trust me, many, many, many people, 
the most important one is the third one. It's like, okay, time to actually take a step into the water. You know, I figured out how to swim. I, you know, I read all the books on it. I watched 14 videos on how to swim, you know, and how to rescue someone. So it's not just about me in case they're drowning. I'm all ready, but I don't want to get wet because I don't like the water. So, you know, it's like, no, you got to go, you know, jump into the water. It's, it's, it's part of why this is powerful is it's do it now. It's do it, do it, do it. Um, and have that balance of yourself. I, I, I mean, I love the wisdom of recognizing that there's nothing wrong with putting yourself first. There's everything right with putting yourself first. It's just not only you. <laughs> yeah. So I was just going to say, this is sort of, if you think in terms the triangle. of the triangle, Right. If you need to do it at that point in time. But I think someone else said it's a matter of balance. So in that triangle, all of a sudden you go, wow, I am so consumed with taking care of someone else. I really need to take care of me for a little while. Right. And so then, so this triangle is constantly... I like the idea of a triangle. It's good. You know, yes, because you... No one is all of these at all of their life. You're, you know, you... Certainly, you're talking about parenting, you know, parenting, you like, you, you give up, you let go, you do, you step up, you, you know, in the middle of the night, whatever it happens to be, you show up because you're the parent, you gotta show up. Um, <clears throat> but you can't only be showing up. And it's part of the challenge of being a caretaker of anyone, of a spouse, of a child, of a parent, of a, you know, or professionally or not, <coughs> that <clears throat> what's one of our greatest challenges as we have an aging and aging and aging and aging population, obviously, is caring for caretakers. How do we care for those of us who become caretakers of people that we love in our own families and our own spouses and our own kids and our own this and, you know, all that? Because <clears throat> there's more and more of that as an issue. It never used to be. Everyone just died. <laughs> so, you know, earlier and younger and whatever. Now they're not. So now they're around. And now, <clears throat> and, and now you, you, how do you maintain that balance of... Ana Neely, you know, taking, if I'm not for myself, you know, who am I? Where am I? I've got nothing left. So you have to do both. Yeah. Jill, did you have your hand up? No. <clears throat> yeah. The idea of spreading peace, you have to have peace within first before you can peace. Yeah, beautiful. Ba- back to the spreading peace. You, do, you need to start with yourself <clears throat> so that you can then share that with others. Yeah. So that's uh, that's the most uh, well-known phrase probably in the entire Talmud. <clears throat> if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? If I'm only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? Shammai, remember it's Hillel and Shammai. Shammai, we don't want to forget him. Shammai says, <clears throat> make Torah study a regular habit, say little and do much, and welcome everyone with grace. I put grace because one of these guys had grace, but really I think of the Hebrew as sever panim yafot, which means receive everyone with a sweet countenance. That's kind of actually what it, what it means. <clears throat> Interesting. So make Torah study a regular habit. He said, fix study of Torah. And as others say, because if you say, I'll wait till I have time for it, you'll never have time for it whatever the it is. 
So, you know, they were Torah scholars, so that's number one. Make study a regular habit. Could be any kind of study. Because that goes back to, if you don't learn, if you don't grow, you shrink. <clears throat> so that's why he wants you to make Torah study a regular habit every day. It's not how much you do, it's that you keep engaged in learning and growing. It's like growing your soul. <clears throat> Say little and do much. <clears throat> what do you think of that as advice? Action. Certainly not to a rabbi. <laughs> Harry Truman said the same thing. Action. <clears throat> Back to... Speak softly and carry a big stick. Right, yeah, Harry Truman. You know, say little and do much. It's like... Was it? Was it? One of those presidents. Actions speak louder than words. We have a lot of, uh, you know, sayings that are similar. Yeah, say little and do much, which is interesting coming from a teacher. You know, these are teachers. That's what they all were in the academy, teaching. Um, but ultimately, you know, it's like, it's not the... Yes, it's not, it's not the words that, that ultimately... Yeah, they were learning all the time. Yes, they were immersed themselves in this stuff. Um, and welcome everyone with, with a sweet countenance. I like that one better, even though I put down grace. Um, it's another way of saying it. You know, it's like... Which is actually a, funny because uh, most people who know anything about Talmud and know anything about Hillel and Shammai, one of the things they know about Shammai was, as opposed to Hillel, one of the most famous Hillel-Shammai <clears throat> disputes is the famous story of the uh, guy who comes to <coughs> Shammai first and says, you know, teach, uh, I'm thinking about becoming Jewish. Teach me everything there is to know while I'm standing on one foot. You know, and Shammai essentially slaps him in the face and says, get the hell out of here. Um, <clears throat> and he goes to Hillel and he goes, I'm thinking about becoming Jewish. Teach me everything I need to know while standing on one foot. And Hillel says, you know, what you don't want to have happen to you, don't do to another. All the rest is commentary, now go learn. Um, so Hillel has this reputation of being this very short, curt, brusque, not very friendly, not open kind of guy, because that's one of the most famous stories about Hillel and Shammai. But in fact, he said, you should receive everyone kindly and sweetly. Um, he just, in that one particular instance, he, he wasn't didn't want to be taken advantage of. Also, he thought the person was making fun of Judaism. But then Rabban Gamliel <clears throat> is next, says, get yourself a teacher and free yourself from doubt and don't guess when tithing. What's all that about? Get yourself a teacher is popular. Yoshua ben Parachia said it on the other page. Get a teacher. Teachers always say, you need a teacher. Get yourself a teacher. I'm available. <clears throat> free yourself from doubt. Get yourself a teacher and free yourself of doubt. Those are related. <laughs> In the rabbi's mind, that's how you free yourself from doubt. You get a teacher. Don't try to figure it out on your own. You know, they were into group study. There's a reason that they're all listed as couples, too. Get a teacher. Study with somebody. <clears throat> the traditional Jewish way of study is study with a partner. Study with somebody. Get someone to spark your interest, your mind, your 
you know, to argue with you, to discuss with you, to force you to think about what you're saying, that that's how you, how do you gain certainty for yourself, a sense of certainty? You don't do it until someone's having a conversation with you and you have to then stand up and justify what you're saying. No, my opinion is, and you're going, really? Well, did you think about this? And I go, no, I didn't think about that. <clears throat> and in the, in the course of my conversation, my dialogue, I get certainty. I have a sense of, I get, dispel my doubt one way or another about, you know, what I really think, what's really important to me. That's part of the power of getting a teacher. And in this case, a teacher can be a fellow student that you're studying together. You become, because everyone is a teacher. Anyway. So, and don't guess when tithing. I have no idea how that's connected to the other two. But, but, yes. I mean, it's clear what it means. I just don't see how it connects. Does anyone see how it connects? Get a teacher, free yourself from doubt, and don't guess when tithing. I mean, the idea of don't guess when tithing is because you'll shortchange. You're going to err on your own favor. Yeah, I think what I owe the government is mm, no, 900 million less than I owed last week. Um, or... There we go. So the way it's connected is that the way you know what the right amount is in tithing or in anything else like that is because you have a teacher and you wrestle with the issue and the decision and you're not doing it all by yourself. Because if I'm doing it with you, figuring out together what I, what's the appropriate contribution I should be making, taxes I should be paying, whatever, and I'm doing it with you, I'm not making it up. We're figuring it out together. So, you know, I'm, I'm much more likely to be more accurate and have more integrity. And you're much more likely to have more integrity when you're with somebody about everything you're doing, when you have to do something in public, right? And often more generous as, as well. So, Shimon ben Gamliel, that's Shimon, the son of Gamliel. Gamliel was number in 16, and his son Shimon says, all my life... I grew up surrounded by scholars, and I have found nothing better for a person than silence. <laughs> Action, not words, is the main thing, and excessive talk leads to sin. What do you think? I think you just nailed all the previous generations. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, well. I think these guys? Could be, I don't know. Hmm. No. So, what do, you, what do you think of this notion? I grew up all my life surrounded by scholars, by wise people, by sages, because he did. His father was the head of the Beitin and everything else. And I found nothing better for a person than silence. What do you think he actually means by that? Yeah, they argued all the time. That was the whole point. That's why the Talmud is 20 volumes. Everybody argues. Sitting there reading, they were discussing and talking. And so, So maybe for him, he he needed more contemplating. What else? Yeah, Lori. Ah, listening. 
if you're surrounding yourself with wise people, stop talking. <laughs> you know, it's like you don't learn by talking. You learn by listening. Right. So which I think is what he was saying, saying I spent my I grew up as a little kid sitting at the feet of all these adults who were all these guys we just been reading. That's who we grew up with. You know, these guys that we just been reading, that's who I grew up with. And I realized the smartest thing I could do was sit quietly and not get kicked out of the room. But I don't think that's what he's saying. No. Because the second part of it doesn't support that action. Not words is the main thing. An excessive talk leads to sin. Oh. Okay. Why does that connect to the first part? So, so how does it connect to the first part in your line of thinking? Well, if you think it has to do with... Right. I grew up with scholars, so I'm going to be the anti-scholar. Yeah. Of course, he's quoted in the Talmud, so probably wasn't. Um, well... What do you think? Yeah, Steve. Well, I get the same thing that I got from the other one, Shammai and Hillel, which mm-hmm. is actions are more important. Than yeah. Don't sit around and talk and think and discuss. Do things if you're going to be for yourself or for others and if you're going to be thinking about doing these things, don't you think about it? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's about balance again. It's always about balance. You have to talk. It's like the Torah is all about talk. You know, it is. What's the most written phrase in the entire Torah? What do you read? If you read the whole Torah, what do you think are the most five popular five words in the Torah? And God said to Moses, right, and God said to Moses, God spoke to Moses saying, <coughs> almost every other paragraph in there says, and God spoke to Moses saying, and then there's something. How did the world come to be? God spoke. God spoke. Creation comes out of speaking in Jewish theology. The whole Genesis story, the whole beginning of creation is... And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, and there was this. And God said, uh, there's one of the most early morning prayers that traditional Jews say every day is, Baruch she'amar v'haya ha'olam. Blessed is the one who spoke, and the world came to be. The power of words. Part of what I think is perhaps one of the most important ideas in all of Jewish life and Jewish thinking and Jewish teaching is the power of words. To be conscious of and responsible for your words. So it's not an excess, but that you choose words that bring about peace in the world, like Aaron. Be like one of the disciples of Aaron, loving peace and pursuing peace, bringing people to Torah, bringing people to wisdom, bringing people to a spiritual life, bringing people to... to figure out and wrestle with questions of, you know, what are the most important things in life? What are the values that matter? And we do that by talking. 
We do that by sparring verbally and intellectually with other human beings. Um, how do we teach our kids? We teach them by our behavior, number one, of course. That's the most important way. And we try to teach them by telling them and sharing with them our story and who we are and the things that matter to us and the lessons that we think are important. You know, that's why we're all teachers in that sense. We're always teaching. But we teach by what we do and we teach by what we say and we want them to be in proportion. And you want to remember that it's not just about words, which I'm sure is why if it's just all about words, you get back to Hillel. If not now, when? <laughs> you know, it's... But, you know, the the push and the pull of this in Jewish thought is there's no such thing as mere words in Judaism. There's no... Words aren't mere anything. Words have weight. Words, and, and especially thousands of years ago, especially in Torah times. It's why vows were so important. Pledges, promises were like... People's lives hung on words that you would say. They still do today. We have contracts and things. Words matter. We believe words matter. You know, if you couldn't trust someone's word ever or something, a written contract, that's their word. Just the fact that they sign it is just our version of giving your word, shaking their hand, giving their word. If you couldn't do that, how would anybody carry on any business at all in the world? Right? The whole structure of society would collapse if you literally couldn't trust anybody to, to follow through on anything they said to you. We live on faith that you can trust people's words. We act on faith all the time that people's words matter, that what they say they mean. You know, and then we get upset when they don't, and then there's breach of contract, and then there's all those things. That's hopefully not the norm. In a society in which that's the norm, you have chaos. You have anarchy and chaos. We don't have that, but we have all kinds of breaches of contract and you know, people you can't trust and all that. That's supposed to not be the norm. That's supposed to be the exception to the rule. So in our sage Pirkei Avot, in the, our, in the wisdom of our ancestors, they wanted to teach both all the time. Words matter, but actions also matter. And ultimately, if you don't act, the words are meaningless. So ultimately they would come down on the side that action is more important than words. But words also matter. They're not in place of words. You need words and you need action. You need both of them. So, the last on this, chapter one, was Shimon ben Gamliel said, the world is sustained on three principles, truth, justice, and peace. That's a nice way for them to end the, the chapter, truth, justice, and peace, that... Um, Truth and justice are certainly not the same thing. Right? Truth. Often uh, they aren't even related, unfortunately, in the world. Um, actually, the Hebrew word for truth, another little Rabbi Reuben tidbit. The Hebrew word for truth is emet, which is notable because it's made up of three Hebrew letters, Aleph, Mem, and Toph. And Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And Mem is the middle letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And Toph is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And when you put the beginning and the middle and the end together, you get the Hebrew word Emet, which means truth. 
which then encompasses all the letters because that's how you can ultimately... The search for truth is one of the great searches of humankind. In words, I love that. Um, so um, a couple of things from chapter 2 until I run out of time. It's just chapter two. No, it just keeps going. Yes, it keeps going. It, it keeps going chronologically in, in order of the of the the sages. Yes, Rick. Oh. What? Like? What would you like? Love. Yeah. No, it's mentioned back in the number one, the very first thing after the, is Shimonat Sadiq when he said, that the world stands on three things, Torah, Avodah, and Gimilut Chasadim, it's his acts of loving kindness. That's where that came in. Shimon Mangamliel obviously disagrees. He'd say truth and justice, and peace. I don't know. You have three. Got your own three. Are they different? You would say love is one. If you were picking three. Well, if you only got three, you only get three, because they're into three. Because it's easy to remember. Huh? Tzedek, justice. Well, that's justice. Tzedek, 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 Justice, justice. How you pursue? Justice, peace. And how do you, you know, what are the big overriding ideas, concepts that, uh, qualities, if we could have them in the world, and we only have three of them, that might encompass more than that, you know? In his case, it's truth, justice, and peace. Peace, remember, he's saying shalom. He's not saying peace, as in pax, or some absence of conflict. He's saying shalom, and shalom from the Hebrew root shalem, which means wholeness and completeness. So when he says shalom, and as we've always said any time in Jewish literature when we use the word shalom for peace, we are speaking of a wholeness and a completeness of relationship and of beingness and of that is sort of the ideal state of being in Jewish thought. A, a sense of fulfillment, which is also what shalom kind of means, that completeness and wholeness and fulfillment, uh, then the question would be, if you were drawing a Venn diagram, then what do you need to feel whole and complete? In order to have a, be in a state of shalom, or shlemut in Hebrew, a state of wholeness and completeness, what are the things that the what qualities would have to be in your life, one of which might be love, in order to feel whole and complete? Right. So my suspicion is that, that if it were him, if I were in his mind, which I'm not, that that would be part of his thinking. If he were here justifying why he didn't say love, for example, because that's what he. It, for him, that would be included in a sense of wholeness. That the only way you're whole 
is if your relationships are whole, if your uh, both your personal relationships and your professional relationships um, are whole. So, uh, but yeah, it's you know if if I were doing a workshop, I would have everybody take out a piece of paper and come up with what would your three things if you had to say the world sustained on three principles or three pillars as uh, the first one said you know what would your three be you know and essentially it's a values clarification question of you know what to, what comes into your mind as your top three most important qualities you think should be in the world so so compassion, trust, trust knowledge. knowledge. Okay, the world stands on three things, compassion, trust, and knowledge. Mm-hmm. There's no action. Compassion, trust, knowledge. Ah, compassion is a, an element of justice. Do you see compassion as an element of justice? It's interesting because... Because in, uh, like, think of the high holidays. You know, the whole high holiday drama of the high holidays in our liturgy is we're trying to get God to get off God's throne of justice and move over to the throne of mercy or compassion. Because, because we have this notion, traditionally, that we've all screwed up so badly in life that, um, if God were to be, if to impose absolute justice, uh, and judgment on us, we'd all fail because we all transgress in life. And so therefore, what we really need is we need compassion. You know, we need to, to be able to say, call Nidre, all those vows I made and promises I made that I didn't quite do because I forgot about Hillel saying, if not now, when? So I didn't quite get to them. I made those promises, but I never got there. I never made it to the gym whatever, but I paid my dues to the gym every month, but I never got there. Isn't that supposed to be enough? I I want to start all over again, push a reset button. You know, Yom Kippur is like spiritual reset. We push the reset, you know, you unplug because everything works better again if you unplug it for a few minutes, um, including yourself. So, but yeah. So it's a good exercise to do for yourself. You don't have to do it right this minute. We won't keep, at least we can have a couple of these. Um, I think if you're going to, I do it, you know, when I used to do parenting workshops, I should do them again, I like doing them, it's fun. I used to do parenting workshops, and one of the things I would talk about is uh, set ethical parenting goals for your kids. You know, what, what kind of behavior do you want your kids? How do you want your kids to grow up? What do you want them to be? If you could wave your magic wand, you know, and they were 18 or whatever age, you decide they're going to leave you and be grown up. 40 or 50 now or whatever it happens to be when they finally grow up. Um, you know, if, if you had to list the top five qualities you would like them to have in their life, what would they be? And make people actually sit down and go, I'd like them to be truthful or I'd like them to be compassionate or I'd like them to be industrious or I'd like them to be whatever it is. And then, you know, after you identify those qualities you, you that are your goals for your child, then you have to figure out, well, what kind of activities or experiences would I my child have to have that would produce that kind of a person. You know, anyway. Um, but it's the same with us about our own lives. You know, the, what are the qualities that we think should be in the world? And then to step back and go, okay, well, what do I have to do in my own life to make those qualities 
happen in the world? You know, what's my relationship to those qualities? So, where to go? Chapter two. It's frightening, isn't it? That's why we have four of these. Even though we have, there's actually six chapters in Pirkei Avot, but there originally were five, and then they added a sixth. But chapter two. Judah the prince. See, I knew we'd get to Judah the prince. Yehuda Hanasi, Judah the prince. Why Judah the prince? Judah the prince, interesting guy. He was the oldest son of Rabban Gamliel, who we had in the last, in chapter one. He was born at a time when the Hadrian, the Hadrianic persecutions were taking place and circumcision was outlawed. Remember, there are various times, one of the things when the Romans and others would conquer Israel, they would forbid circumcision because that was one of the great Jewish rituals. So they would forbid it. So uh, according to the history, true or not, because uh, who knows, um, he was uh, born during the time when the persecution was outlawed, but he was secretly circumcised, and then word got out about it, and his mother was ordered to bring him to the uh, to the emperor who was uh, at the time in Jerusalem, because uh, his father was famous, Rabbi Gamaliel, he was the head of the Jewish academies, to be killed. But on the journey, according to the story, a Roman woman gave birth and offered to switch babies with uh, Judah the prince's, Judah's mother, so she could take the Roman baby with her and say, this is my son, because he wasn't circumcised. And the emperor would think that the rumors of his circumcision were false and spare him, which he did. Um, it was, uh, Gamaliel was the great, 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 great grandson of Hillel. Yeah, it was one of those lines of succession. That's part of what this is all about, too. They wanted to keep it in the family lines of succession. Um, and uh, he was the one who ordered, created the Mishnah. He was the one who said, this is the oral law. Up to that time, there were, you know, the written law was the Torah scroll. The oral law was everything that came afterwards that, that sages taught to each other. And it was oral. It wasn't gathered together in one place anyway. It was like, you know, this, this teacher taught this, and that's why all this stuff is in threes, because it was oral, and they had to remember it. It was oral transmission. <clears throat> so it made it easier to remember what this person said and what that person said. That's why there's all these threes and threes and twos and threes and threes and threes because of mnemonic devices. So ultimately, Judah the Prince realized we're going to be in trouble if we don't gather all this together in one place and write down what these rules are and these laws are that we've all agreed on. So he uh, compiled what became known as the Mishnah. He ordered the oral law to be written, essentially. Yeah. Quick question. Uh, chapter 1 is written before Chapter 2, I see. Yep. And so that's an older... Well, in theory, yeah, because the people are older. Well, because in Chapter 1... The, actually, they were all gathered together, but the, the oh. by the same time, by Judah the Prince. Okay, when Chapter 1 is talking about Rabban Gamaliel, and then Chapter 2 says Rabban Gamaliel is the son of Judah the Prince. Right, because they had the same names popping back and forth. There's like five Gamliels, and there's that's why, because they kept using the same names over and over again. It's very confusing to figure out who's who, because they keep, you know, it's Gamliel Ben. You have to figure out the son of whom.
which Gamaliel? Because th- that was a popular name among these sages. So, uh, you, you, Judah the Prince, Yehuda Hanasi in Hebrew, Judah the Prince was also known as one of the great Hebraicists. He was living in a time when Aramaic was the common tongue. Hebrew was still the sort of sacred tongue. The Torah is written in Hebrew, of course. And he was one of, known as, because they, he insisted everyone speak Hebrew in his household. So much so that according to the Talmud, some statements in the Talmud, that his, the maids in his household were such, uh, expert Hebrew speakers that the sages used to go to them when they would find an obscure Hebrew word that they didn't understand. They'd go check it out with the maids in Judah the prince's house because they were better Hebrew speakers than they were, than the sages were. So, Judah the prince said, what is the right path? What you're about to see is Judah and every once in a while some other people thrown in here, but and his students talking back and forth, <coughs> mostly. Although, and he throws in Hillel again. Judah the prince said, what's the right path? One that honors both the self and others. Be as careful to do a minor mitzvah as a major mitzvah. Why? Because you can't know which is which. If you decide to act, weigh the cost to you against the benefit to others. If you decide not to act, weigh the benefit to you against the cost to others. And pay attention to three things, and you will stay far away from sin. Know what is above you, a seeing eye, a listening ear, and that all your actions are written in the book of life. It's a classic rabbi's name. Okay, so what's the right path, according to Judah the Prince? One that honors both the self and others. So it's like... Balance. Hmm? Both. The both is the, is the key here. You know, honors both yourself and others. Um, I love, be careful, be as careful doing a minor mitzvah as a major mitzvah. Because it's one of, I think, one of the most uh, wise statements about life. Be careful to do a minor, you know, a minor mitzvah as to do a major mitzvah because how do you know which is which? You know, how do you ever know? Like, you know, think about your own life. How, how do you know what are the little things in life and what are the big things in life? What would you consider to be the big things in life? What's a big thing? Your kids. Taking care of your kids. Taking care of yourself. Oh, God's calling. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm sure if you think about it, everyone has had experiences of the minor to major, major to minor. You know, things that you thought were little turned out to be big, and things that you thought were big turned out to be little in life. You know, things you agonized over were like, sometimes like they're just like picking up sand that just went away. And then things you never thought of to worry about, those became the big things, right? I mean, there's so many different aspects of life in which this is true, uh, which is why he said, really, be careful, as careful about doing a minor mitzvah as a major mitzvah. A minor mitzvah might be a major mitzvah to the person you're doing it for. 
you know, what's a minor mitzvah? You, you're sitting in a, at the uh, light and somebody's walking around asking you for money and, you know, you, you give them a dollar or I don't know what, or whatever, if you happen to do that. You have no idea what the impact of that action might be on that person in that moment. You smile to somebody. I mean, you pay someone attention. You know, we think it's like a major thing is give them money. You know, it might be that the major thing is giving them attention, whoever the them is, you know, or listening to them, stopping for a moment and having someone feel like you're actually care about them in one way or in any way. I certainly have had a million experiences in my professional life where that has been the case, where, you know, it's just some pause somewhere that made a difference for someone that I had no idea. Likewise, I've had lots of time when people are very upset with me because I looked right through them. You know, because I'm good at that. A good teacher inspiring a child. You know, yeah, and you know, the, and the trick of one of the great ironies of being a teacher is that you most of the time don't even know what you're doing, when you're doing which. You know, when something you say or do has, has touched someone profoundly and when it hasn't. You know, you may think you have the greatest lesson in the world that may go for someone and some other thing that you say on, in passing, you know, touches someone, changes their life. I mean, things like that. You never know. You know, and all of us in that case are interacting with people every day. You don't know what, what, what your impact is on people unless you're lucky enough that they tell you, which most of the time they don't, you know, for good or bad. So therefore, everything matters in that sense and everybody matters. You know, it's like saying pay attention to the unimportant people as much as you pay attention to the important people because you never really know who's the unimportant person and who's the important person. You could say the same thing that way. You know, and things that come back and, you know, into your life years later. But you've all had those experiences. I don't have to say that. In any event, I love that. Careful to do a minor mitzvah because you don't know which is which. So what's this? If you decide to act, weigh the cost to you against the benefit to others. And if you decide not to act, weigh the benefit to you against the cost to others. We're going to get through the first one. That's it. What's that mean? Somebody explain that to me. (laughs) Or find an example of doing that. To be mindful of the impact of what you're doing. What you're doing, how it impacts you, and how it impacts others. Be aware of both sides of the coin. I suppose, let's see, the cost to you or the benefit to others. So, uh, you know, if I'm going to, back to Imein Anili Mili, if I'm not for myself and if I'm only for myself, if you're, uh, when you're doing something on behalf of someone else, or helping someone else or entering into an agreement with someone or a contract or a business deal or a relationship or whatever, to ask yourself, you know, weigh the cost to you of taking that action uh, versus the benefit that you're expecting to happen to that person and, this, and the opposite then is also true.
Right. That's both. Think before you act or react. Maybe. Think before you act and react. Beautiful. <coughs> and finally, what's it mean by this? This is the last thing we're doing because it's nine. Pay attention to three things and you will stay far away from sin. Know what is above you. Know what is above you. That sounds like it should be three things, but... <coughs> Know what is above you. So what's above you? What does he mean by a seeing eye and a listening ear and that all your actions are written in the book of life? Santa Claus is coming to town. <laughs> right? He knows when you've been sleeping and he knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been good or bad. So be good for goodness sake. Um, yeah, it's kind of the Santa Claus version of, uh, of God. <clears throat> but... You know, there are many synagogues that we don't have anything. Well, we only have that that I put up on top of the Yurtzeit plaque, uh, plaques, the, uh, from the Book of Proverbs. But there are many synagogues, if you go into their sanctuaries, that over their sanctuary, there'll be a phrase from the Bible that says, da, in Hebrew, da omed, which means know before whom you stand. And obviously the idea, is to inject a little bit of awe and reverence and humility in the sacred space of that sanctuary. But it's the same version, it's another version of this. That is, to imagine that your actions are written in the book of life. Um, And you can take that many ways. That's the whole high holiday drama, obviously, the book of life. It's open and the gates are closing and the book's closing and all that. And do you want to be inscribed in the book of life for the year the year ahead. But part of that is our, this is the poetic, spiritually poetic language of our ancestors who were expressing a fundamental truth that we all experience in our lives, which is the things that we do matter. <laughs> it's that simple. You know, the, the things you do are written in the book of life. The words you say when they come out of your mouth, they're out of your mouth. You don't even know who they're touching or what they're doing or who's hearing them and how they're hearing it and what impact it's having on them and whether you just hurt someone for the rest of their life because you said something that diminished them in some way, intentionally or unintentionally. And the choices that you make and the actions you make that know that what you do is written forever, inscribed. That you know we are writing our own story every day, the story of our lives every day. Uh, in the universe. We're writing it there and by the choices we make. And it seems to me that a lot of what the the spiritually poetic metaphoric language of prayer uh, of Jewish liturgy is um, in essence to remind us and teach us what I say too often which is that what we say and what we do and who we are matters. But that's it, what I believe. That the more we're able to <clears throat> experience ourselves as powerful in the world, that what we say has an impact and what we do has an impact beyond even our ability to know, that's kind of the minor and major thing. Again, the more careful we are, the more thoughtful we are, the more, uh, the more contemplative we are as we make the decisions that we make, the more we think through. Um, that's why the... Tom, but also says that the wisest person is the one who knows the results of his behavior.
or a behavior. That is what's going to happen as a result of me making this choice or that choice. That's where true wisdom is, is the thinking ahead to, you know, what will happen if I say those words and then not say them. I had someone the other day say, I do think, I think about it before I say, I think about, should I say that? And then I always say yes. (laughs) I said, if you think, should I say that? The chances are the answer should be no, <laughs> or, or it wouldn't have come up like that in your mind. So next time, try that and see if you get a better result. <laughs> and then my daughter said no. Um, anyway, so yeah. Could you repeat those words? I have no idea what I said. Oh, no, before whom you stand? No, before whom you stand. That one I can repeat. Sense of awe. That's why in Hebrew, awe and fear are the same word. Um, <clears throat> yira, yira tadonai, the fear of God is the awe of God. Oh, anyway, thank you very much for coming, and because I'm always excessive in my words, it's after nine o'clock, <clears throat> and there'll be another one next month sometime. <clears throat>